Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, when, when John said that this is basically going to be like um, you decide what to preach on, I thought, oh, no. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of free will, but the only problem with free will is you have to choose to do stuff um, and make decisions for <laughs> what am I going to talk about. Um, but I was glad in a way because... When I'm told what to preach on, I like to get into that book and study and spend, spend, spend some time to see, get stuff to come out of it. And I really haven't had a chance because I've been as sick as a dog all week, as you can probably hear from me. So I'm glad that I, it was a, I didn't have a set topic, but I can rather talk about something that I've been thinking and praying about and has been on my heart for ages. So I'm actually very glad that you gave me a choice. Um, yeah, so, and then, then woke up to find inches of snow outside. It's been, oh, hello. <laughs> it's an interesting day to do it on. Um, yeah, um, so there's been something, the title for today is The Kingship of Christ and Worship. And these are, these are some ideas that I've actually been pondering and thinking about and praying about for a few months now. Um, the idea of Jesus' kingship and what is worship and how that's all wrapped up in the gospel. And, and the reason I have been thinking about it is because, it's because of my job. Um, <laughs> that's what I do, I suppose. Um, but I have a privilege of, written, it's much more in the last couple of years, of actually traveling the world and, and teaching people about the Bible. And the more you do something, the more you get known for certain things. And so I tend to only get asked to go places to teach certain books because that's what they know that I do. Um, and four in particular, which I get asked to do a lot, is Kings, Job, Romans, and Revelation. Um, just so happens that I've done them a lot, and people like them, apparently. And I get asked to do them in there. And it's out of these four books in particular that these kind of ideas are starting, starting to kind of tickle in the back of my head over the last few months. And they've kind of come into my teaching more and my own devotion time. And I've been thinking about them. So when John said that this was a free choice, that was the instant the thing that popped up in my head. is like this idea of Christ's kingship and worship and what worship is. Because I've seen these themes come out of these books as I've been teaching them time and time and time again. You know, if you do something, I tend to get bored sometimes on my own teaching. Um, other people might like it, but I keep on hearing the, hear me say the same things time and time again. And so I'm always looking for something new, just purely on the grounds to keep myself <laughs> ticking over and keep myself interested in what I'm saying. And so I'm always interested in some of the themes that pop up. And I'm a, I'm a big picture person. So I like seeing how things from what might be completely separate books of the Bible are actually connected. And how you can see themes through seemingly unconnected books. And kings, obviously. Well, kings obviously has a lot to do with kingship. Because it's all about kings. Um, but the interesting thing about kings, I think, for me, is it's, it's not so much about the kingship of the kings of Israel and Judah. Obviously, they're the main characters in the story. They're the ones doing things or not doing things. Um, but the whole, the book itself is, is a bigger picture. It's about, 
It's about Yahweh. It's about God being king. Um, that was the point, that he was the king of Israel. And the guy on the throne in Jerusalem or Samaria, that was just his representative. That was the guy doing it on earth for him. But the king's job was to kind of enforce the real king's laws, to rule for God on earth. Um, and they were always meant to, meant to keep in mind that they weren't really the king. Um, often the Bible refers to the kings of Israel as princes, because that's what they were. They were just princes. The real king was in heaven. Um, and so this comes out time and time again when I've been teaching kings, this, the kingship of God and how the leaders on earth, how they relate to that kingship. And the book of Kings is a long list of how these little kings related well to that kingship or mostly related badly to that kingship and how they didn't do the job of enforcing the king's laws. And how actually in the most extreme cases, they replaced him. They replaced Yahweh as king of, of Israel and with another king, maybe a Gentile king or maybe a foreign god, that they gave that kingship to someone else. Um, and I've also noticed that how all of that is wrapped up with the idea of their worship. You may remember a while ago I was, we had a series on kings and one, the part that I had was looking at Jeroboam the first. And his kingship fell on worship and what he did in changing Israel's worship for the worst. And so this idea of ruling for God and worship were connected. Then there's Job. Job might seem to have nothing to do with that. <laughs> On the face of it, Job is a story of a, an innocent man who goes through great suffering and is, and is asking why. And is asking, God, what are you doing? <laughs> What's happening in my life? What is your role in this? And, and so it seems to be a kind of like a, I suppose... I suppose you would call it ancient religious philosophy about why do innocent people suffer and what is God's role in the question of good and evil. Um, but I think there's also a kind of a bigger issue going on in Job. And it's actually the question is, is God actually worthy of worship? Because um, the challenge that the Satan gives at the beginning of the book is, Job only worships you because you bless him. You've given him so much, so of course he's going to worship you. If you take that all away, he's going to curse you. And so the challenge is basically, God, you're, not, you're, you're only worthy of worship if you give presents. If you bribe your worshippers into worshipping you. In yourself, you're not worthy of worship. And of course, Job in his kind of limited view of all this, how does he respond to that famous line, you know, Yahweh gives, Yahweh take away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. And so this idea, it didn't matter if he had or he hadn't, he, he was still going to worship God. And, and also at the end of the book, after Job and his friends have been questioning for so long, <laughs> so long, <laughs> about what is going on, why this is happening in Job's life, God turns up and answers absolutely none of their questions. 
Instead, he does something very interesting. He reveals that he's in control. And he reveals, actually, you could say, he doesn't say, we don't say the word, but you could say, he reveals that he's king. He reveals that he's king over all creation. And that actually, he's king over all matters of good and evil. He is sovereign. And this revelation of God's authority and sovereignty comforts Job. And in the end, you have that other, one of the other famous parts of Job where he says, I had heard of you, but now that I see you, um, translations interested. I prefer, the, I prefer not the repent. There's another translation that says, I am comforted in my dust and ashes. So it's like he sees God's kingship and that comforts him. It doesn't answer any of his questions, but it comforts him. So again, seemingly unconnected books, but for me, I've seen these little things pop up again. Then you have Romans. Romans, of course, is all about how Paul uses the gospel message to reconcile a bunch of Jewish Christians and a bunch of Gentile Christians in Rome who aren't getting along, and how he's using the gospel message to show that they're one family, that they're one people. But at the beginning of the book, he kind of sums up what the gospel is. And he interestingly, he doesn't talk about things that we usually talk about the gospel, you know, about forgiveness of sins, salvation, these type of things. He just, he simply says that the gospel is Jesus, that Jesus is king, that the gospel message is actually that Jesus is the son of David by flesh and the son of God by the spirit. Um, and he uses that incredible little phrase which we're going to say and sing quite a lot over the next few weeks, Christ the Lord. Um, How the gospel actually is the good news of the king, that we have a king and he's bringing this kingdom, which has all that wonderful things like forgiveness of sin, salvation, blessing, all that stuff. But the focus itself is the king. And again, That phrase he uses, Christ the Lord, he takes a Jewish expression, Christ, Messiah. He takes a Gentile expression, kurios, which means master, Lord or master. So it's like Jesus, the king of the Jews and the master of the Gentiles. So it's, again, kingship of Christ. But there's also worship. What's the other really famous part of Romans? Therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, and that is your acceptable worship. How do you respond to the gospel? How do you respond to this king? You offer yourself as a living sacrifice. I may need more of this. Um, And then finally, Revelation, which I teach a lot. Um, It's a lot of fun. Um, Revelation primarily shows how Jesus wins. If you're going to sum up Revelation in two words, it's Jesus wins. It's Jesus has victory over evil, whoever evil is. Um, It's showing all his authority and power and greatness and victory. And you have this incredible contrast in Revelation. You have a lamb and you have a beast. And the challenge to John's readers is, who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship the lamb or are you going to worship the beast? And you also have two marks or brands 
in this. The most famous one, of course, is 666, branded on the forehead. I think some people forget there's another one, that the actual the people who are worshipping the Lamb are also branded with Jesus' name on their forehead. Um, so, and what's branding? What, what, what do you brand? Something that you own. Like you brand sheep and cows, the mark, the, the seal of the owner. And so it's saying, are you going to worship the beast, have his mark, therefore say that he owns you? Or are you going to worship the lamb, have his mark, and therefore say that he owns you. In the time of writing, um, John is encouraging them, you have two options of kingship here. Are you going to serve the king in heaven or are you going to serve the king in Rome? Who is going to be your master? Who are you going to worship? Who is going to be your king? So this idea of kingship, this idea of worship also seems so connected in these books. Other books that I haven't taught as much, but I've noticed it too, Daniel, for example. Daniel is talking about how do you stay loyal to your king and how do you worship him properly in a foreign land that is telling you to worship someone else? Isaiah, especially the first half, is focusing on kings of Judah um, and how they relate to their king, to God. You have Ahaz, who rejects his true king and replaces him with Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. Um, Interestingly enough that um, the Bible writers refuse to write Ahaz's full name um, because in archaeology they found his real name. It's Jehoahaz. Um, but the Bible writers have refused to put Jeho next to Ahaz because that is Yahweh. And so it's like they refuse to give him his real name because he did so much to reject his true king. But in contrast, you have Hezekiah who submits to his true king and worships. He goes to the temple and says, you're my king, the Assyrians are demanding this, sort them out. And so they, he does it. Ahaz does it completely wrong, Hezekiah does it right. And basically all of this has led me to think, actually, what is worship? On many of the schools that I've led up at the lodge, one of the things we do at the beginning of the school is get everyone together in the school and talk about the worship that we're going to do over the year. Because one of the things we do on the SBS is that every week the students lead worship and they take turns so there's a flavour of different types of worship and different styles and different nationalities that we can all share in. And we often ask, like, how do you worship? What is worship? And it's interesting. The question is, what is worship? But the answer is, what kind of worship do I like? And what people tend to talk about is, oh, I I like dancing, singing, clapping. Oh, I like more reserved old-fashioned hymns. Oh, I like big groups singing together. Oh, I like just on my own quiet times. And it's more like what people like. Another story, more personal one. Um, Just before me and Joy were married, 
um, when we were still doing a long-distance relationship, me over here, Joy in Korea. Um, she came and visited around Easter time. And we spent a couple of days in London and then a couple of days in Kent with my mum and dad. And we have this interesting contrast of worship uh, because we're in London, we're in London on Sunday, and Joy said, we must go to Hillsong. Okay, so we went to Hillsong, like, which is literally in a theatre, <laughs> and there it was, all the bright lights, the music, the dancing, the cor- all, all this stuff, and there's Joy in her element. She's dancing, she's clapping, arms in the air, worshipping God, loving every minute of it, and then there's Andy. feeling out of place, uncomfortable, and wondering what's going on. And then a couple of days later, we're in Kent with mum and dad, and Andy says, ooh, we're in Canterbury, we have to go to the cathedral for Evensong. And there we are in this ancient building, and then the choir singing, the organ going, reverberating on the ancient stone walls, and there's me in my element going, Hairs going up on the back of my head, loving every minute. And there's Joy. Um, <laughs> exactly the same response that I had in Hillsong. And, and that's, that's usually what we focus about of worship, isn't it? Like what kind of worship makes us comfortable? Um, just to let you know, we've kind of met in the middle now. <laughs> I actually do, I, the, my foot has known to tap when visiting Hillsong in London because we do every time we're in London we do go visit Hillsong and I, I enjoy it and especially now with Jenny because Jenny loves it and a couple of weeks ago we were in, in Cambridge and some friends from Korea was visiting and Joy says to them we have to go to King's College for Evensong and she like led them into the build up there and then left me with Jenny at the back <laughs> and she was loving it so we have come together um, But that's kind of what we focus on when it comes to worship, on how we worship rather than what worship actually is. And this has made me think, okay, what does the word itself mean? Now, of course, worship for us has been thoroughly Christianized. It's all wrapped up in Christianity and the church and what we do on Sunday, and it's hard to kind of distinguish that. But are there any other uses of this word outside of this context? And I immediately discovered two. One of them is in, early in the book of Kings. Um, it's not interestingly not usually translated this way. But it says, Bathsheba comes to visit David and she worshipped him. It's usually translated now paid homage or something like that. But the Hebrew word is worship. She worshipped David. And the other one, and some of you may have experienced this, in the more old-fashioned marriage vows. Do you remember that one line? With my body, I thee worship. Who said that? Did anyone actually say that? So They tend not to do it now. I, I think because there's so much association with what the word worship means, that we feel uncomfortable saying, I'm going to worship my husband or I'm going to worship my wife. Um, Worship in that sense kind of means loyalty, obedience, giving ownership of yourself to someone else. 
And so, rather kind of controversial thing to say, it seems entirely possible to be able to worship something other than God. We don't tend to say that a lot because now worship means so much more. (laughs) But the word itself, the act itself, is the act of loyalty, obedience, and giving yourself to someone else. So Bathsheba was saying, you are my king. You own me. I am utterly loyal to you, my king. I obey you. I worship you. The marriage vows are saying, I vow to give myself to you for the rest of our lives. Final book to talk about. We want to jumping all over the Bible this morning. Samuel. Recently, I taught Samuel in Cambridge, which sounds far more impressive than it actually is, to say that. <laughs> um, it's in a YWAM base in Cambridge. Um, and this is the first time I've ever taught Samuel. And, and so I was preparing and teaching this. And it, Samuel, is a, in a way, I knew a lot about it because it's the, same, it's the same story as Kings. It's part of that. Former prophets, it's probably compiled by the same person around about the same time. And it's this whole story of God being the king of Israel. And it's in particular about three leaders of Israel and how they relate to their true king, Samuel, Saul, and David. Um, Samuel and Saul, of course, uh, Samuel and David, sorry, are two good examples of how you relate to your king. And Saul is a terrible one. But often it's the terrible ones that teach us more than the good ones. So looking briefly at Saul... And there's a couple of stories about Saul which shows this, but one in particular, 1 Samuel 15. This is when Saul is fighting the Amalekites. And he is instructed that he has to kill them all. The phrase actually is, they are devoted to destruction. And this meant that they were all gods, essentially. He was going to have them all. Um, Now, in ancient times, when you conquered a city or a people, you'd have the spoils of war, what you get from that place. And the king would take the most, obviously, and then he would take the rest and distribute it to his army and reward people, like his favorites or people he wanted to impress or get closer or people particularly brave. But the king had the power who gets the stuff. But what God was saying is, in this case, I get all the stuff. You, Saul, and the army don't get anything. You're working for me, and I want it all. But Saul defeats the Amalekites and then gives God the worst stuff. All the stuff he didn't want, he sacrifices and kills. He keeps the best for himself and then starts distributing to his favorites to reward with the things that were supposed to be God's. Samuel is completely furious with Saul, again, um, about this. That he has basically taken Yahweh's share. He's stolen God's share and used it for his own purposes. And that kind of shows what kind of man Samuel was. Saul was. He doesn't obey his true king. And when he worships in the more traditional sense, he does it for his own benefit not for God's. 
And Samuel's response to him is interesting. He say, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen is better than the fat of rams. And I think that's key, that God was actually looking for someone who would listen to him and obey him, not just worship in the traditional kind of way of thinking about it, not just going through the rituals, but giving no heed to the obedience. This is a theme that is continued throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Many of the prophets also say this about God doesn't want your sacrifices, he wants you. (laughs) Um, That's more important to him. So it seems that there's a greater view of worship. It's not so much about the things that you do, it's actually you. It's like God doesn't necessarily want your actions. What he wants is you. He would rather obedience than all the sacrifice in the world than all the service, than all the ritual, than all the worship in the traditional sense. That's what he's looking for. Worship, it seems, is obedience. Worship is to obey your king, and that is how you worship him. That's how the word was used back then, and that's how it seems the biblical writers are using it, in the sense of kingship. Worship is all about kingship. To obey is to worship. And now we're coming up to Christmas. Where, like I said, we're going to say Christ the Lord quite a lot. We're going to talk about the king that was born in a manger. Um, We'll sing carols of lines like glory to the newborn king. And there's going to be so so much focus on this baby being the king. And often, quite rightly... When we look at Christmas, we often point towards Easter. So many people say that, and it's quite right to do that. The fact that this is not just about this birth, it's about how this baby grew up to be the saviour on the cross. But maybe we should also go a bit more than that. Maybe at Easter we shouldn't just point towards Maybe at Christmas, we shouldn't just point toward Easter. Maybe we should actually, in a weird way, point towards Ascension Sunday. In the fact that this little baby, yes, grew up to be the savior of the world, but this little baby grew up to be the resurrected king who ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God and became the king of everybody. I've noticed something very interesting among tradition, um, Christian traditions. When you, when you picture Jesus, in the West, we tend to picture Jesus mostly there, as an example, <laughs> the cross. So many icons, so many paintings of Jesus, so many art, art of Jesus is him on the cross. And that says something, I think, about us in the West, that we tend to focus on salvation. We tend to focus on Jesus being the saviour of the world, the forgiveness of sins. And and that is absolutely correct and right that we do so, because that's obviously vitally important that we preach the cross. 
But I think that says something about us, too, that that seems to be primarily our focus. But the interesting thing is, if you go to the East, and if you go to the Eastern Church, of course you still see Jesus on the cross. But the art of the Eastern Church is slightly different. Mostly you see Jesus on the throne, not on the cross. There seems to be a... a, And that, I think, says something about them. (laughs) That they tend to focus less on the actual act of salvation, but more about where it led to. And they focus on the fact that, that, that Jesus reigns on high, that he is the king of all. In fact, the, the title is Pantocrator, basically the one who holds all in his hands. Jesus, the king of the world. That's what their art is more focused on. And I think that's something that we can learn from. That we can, Yes, we can focus on the cross, but I think we should also focus a bit more on the throne. Because in reality, that's where Jesus is right now, reigning as king. And that's why we worship him. Um, if worship is about obedience and kingship, it's almost like we thank God, we praise Jesus that he died for us. And we are incredibly grateful. But that's actually not why we worship him. We worship him because he's our king. We worship him because he owns us. And therefore, we need to live lives of obedience to him because he is our king. But worship, of course, is not just what we're going to do when I stop talking. Um, Worship is not just about Sunday. In fact, I would say worship starts actually when we leave this building. That worship, in a sense, is more about Monday to Saturday than it is about Sunday. That worship is about, you know, what we do on a Sunday is, is vitally important. That corporate coming together to declare our allegiance to our King. To worship Him for who He is and to thank Him together as one body for what He's done for us. But God, throughout Scripture, is saying, thank you, I love that, that's great, but what I want is you. Not your words, not your actions, but you, your obedience. Worship is being obedient. Worship is being loyal. Worship is declaring that you, your body, your life, belongs to your king. That image in Revelation, worship is literally being branded with Jesus' name on your forehead. (laughs) So anyone that looks at you says, oh, he belongs to Jesus. She belongs to Jesus. He owns us. God likes us singing to him. God likes us coming together and worshipping him in that way. But I think he likes us following his ways far more. And so I suppose my challenge this morning to myself as much as to you as we go into Christmas is, yes, Christmas leads on to Easter. Absolutely. But Easter leads on to ascension. The king defeated evil on the cross and was then ascended to glory where he was essentially his coronation. 
the ascension was Jesus' coronation. He now reigns as king over all, and he's our king. And all the things that we thank him for are possible because he is king. So let us worship. Let us say, Jesus, I'm yours. I want to be obedient. I want to be loyal. I will never be perfect. <laughs> but you think David, David gets this probably more than any other ruler in the Old Testament, that, that Yahweh is his king. But he makes more mistakes than any other <laughs> ruler in the Old Testament. So it's not about perfectly obeying, but it's that sense of, I want to obey you. I want to be loyal to you. I want my life to be yours. Not just when we sing together on Sunday, but when I go home and when I go to work and all that I do, that I am obedient to you and that I am yours, because that is worship. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for... We do thank you for what you have done for us. We think of coming up to Christmas, the absolutely incredibleness of the fact that You, the God, the creator of the whole earth, came down and became one of us. I mean, one of the most incredible things ever, that the God of infinity was squished into the size of a baby. It's beyond comprehension. And we do thank you for that. And we do thank you that you are our savior, that you died for us, that you made it possible for us to be in relationship with the Father again and to be in relationship with one another. But above all, I want to say that we are loyal, that you are our king, and we worship you, and we we desire to obey you and to give you our lives because you are our king. So help us, Lord. Help Help us to wear that brand on our forehead with pride, and that we are yours, that we belong to you, and that you are our king, and that that be our acceptable worship. that our our lives are living sacrifices completely offered over to you. In your name, amen.